Luke chapter 2, 1 through 14, hear the word, the infallible authoritative word of God. In those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. This was the first registration since Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to register, each to his own home. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out on the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel of multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Children, you are dismissed. Please take a seat, open your Bibles, keep them open to Luke chapter 2. Bible's in the back as the kids leave. Um, we're on Luke chapter 2, starting to feel a lot like Christmas kind of odd for me to actually read that passage and it's only November but that's where we are we are walking through the gospel according to Luke verse by verse chapter by chapter last week we wrapped up chapter 1 80 verses long chapter um, and Luke is revealing to us this historical redemptive plan of God and he did so by beginning to show us or the announcement of the coming of John the Baptist if you remember the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament closes out the Old Testament with a promise that a prophet would be raised up and would come and would announce and prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord himself. 400 years of silence and then the Gospels open up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was that same Gabriel, uh, angel Gabriel that was sent uh, to a man named Zechariah and his elderly wife that she would conceive and bear a son. His name would be John. Call him John, meaning God is gracious. We know that Zechariah responded in unbelief and God closed his mouth and closed his ears. And he was teaching this priest, lovingly teaching this priest a valuable lesson. Zechariah, we saw last week, he learned his lesson and his faith increased because when it was time for the child to be born, instead of naming him Zechariah like the culture tells him to, he said, no, no, the angel said, John, his name will be John. At once his mouth was open, his ears were open, his tongue loosed, and he began to worship and praise the Lord. Perfect response. We also learned from chapter 1 that the same Gabriel, angel Gabriel, went to a virgin girl named Mary in the town of Lazarus. Uh, in the town of, um, help me out. Nazareth, thank you. She will bear a son. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, it says, will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. When the power of the Most High will come upon her, will overshadow her, and she will have a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He's the Holy One, the Son of God. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign and rule over the house of Jacob forever, for his kingdom will have no end. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen this, this, this psalm, this song, 
the Magnificat, as Mary sings this song. And then we saw last week uh, Zechariah sing what is called the Benedictus. It's the first couple of verses of that song in Latin. We said that last week, the week before, I think it was Pastor Chris said, that these narratives, these psalms of praise, is really pointing to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, blessing these servants of His, who graciously includes them in the participation of what He's doing in His redemptive plan. And we see these people just filled with joy and, and, and filled with praise and worship. Now we come today in chapter 2, the historical record of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We usually hear it at Christmas. We're early this year. A very familiar praise uh, and passage, especially around Christmas, right? I know it's not Thanksgiving yet, and you're thinking, why are we doing Christmas? It's okay. We're going through Luke. This is where we are. I'm preaching Matthew when it comes to Christmas Eve. But my hope and prayer is that as I read these verses, we look at these verses, our eyes don't get glazed over, glazed over like you have heard this story a thousand times. But that God would give us some fresh eyes to see something very special, something that he would use to transform us into the image of his son, something he would use to help us to worship and praise him and thank him this morning. A holy reverence as we look at this beautiful passive scripture, a very, very beautiful, wonderful passage of scripture. Three simple headings. The sovereign God, verses one through five, the Savior's birth, six and seven, and then the shepherd's newsflash we see in verses 8 and following. So that's where we're at for this morning. So let's first look at the first few verses, verses 1 through 5, and we'll see the sovereign God. We see again Dr. Luke, the physician, companion of Paul, has gone to great detail to give us what he said he would do, he would, he would give us back in the first few verses. That this gospel account is an orderly historical narrative Historical narrative of the perfect life, the ministry, the cross, the work of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. And what Luke loves to do, especially in these first few verses, is give us these historical markers. He's an investigator. Remember, from chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 5, we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Right? There's a certain time period he's letting us know. There was a man named Zechariah, a priest. Not just a priest, he's from the division of Abijah. Chapter 1, verse 26 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And then in verse 39 of chapter 1, Luke tells us about a visit that took place. Six months later, how, how Mary went to visit her elderly relative Elizabeth. And the baby leaped in the room. He's given us these markers. Last week we saw that there was a crowd that gathered in the community. That gathered around this godly elderly woman named Elizabeth. To rejoice with her over her, the birth of her son. And now we get to chapter 2. Luke is making it clear that the birth happened. Jesus' birth happened during a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus. The whole world should register. Like why are you doing all this Luke? You can say, yes, because it's historical. Yes, because it happened. But it's also a way for Luke to say to Theophilus, who he's writing to, and all those who read this account, go ask them yourself. Go check it out. There's still people that can testify to what I'm saying. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. This is not legend. This is not folklore. No matter what your high school, your professor in college is telling you, 
This is a historical account. It doesn't start with once upon a time there was a story or, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. Like, that's not how Luke does it. Not something just to inspire us, some story that we, we are to just feel good about. That's not what Luke is saying. Luke starts his story. You know the year, you know that year that Caesar Augustus gave that census for the whole Roman world? That year. Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian. Ruler of the empire world, because the whole world, the inhabited world must register. He's a famous man. He's, a, he's the, the, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He, had, he, had, uh, he was a fighter. He was a scrapper. He, uh, he had fought and, and defeated Antony and, and Cleopatra. He was called Caesar, the first one to be called, uh, the first Caesar to be called Augustus. Some Senate vote gave him this title. It means, listen, holy, great, magnificent, worthy of reverence. That's, his, that's what his name, that's what his title is. It, it was given to the gods of that day. And about this time that Luke is writing, there were cities in Asia Minor that celebrated Caesar Augustus' birthday, hailing him as savior of the world. He was so powerful that they gave him this godlike savior status in the Roman Empire. One historian named John Bookin, he writes this, that when Caesar Augustus died, men actually comforted themselves, reflecting that Augustus was a god and that gods do not die, end quote. Luke goes on, not only speak of this, this emperor, but Quirinius, the, the governor of Syria. You see what he's saying? He's saying, that, look, there's real people in real places in real history. Not once upon a time, not some fairy tale. Solemn history announcing the savior of the world in historical context. So Luke sets his narrative squarely on the context of history that can be verified. All this took place from a word of an emperor, and all of a sudden, thousands, millions of people traveling thousands of miles, the whole world set in motion. Every man in every providence had to register. Almost certainly, I think every commentator says it, mostly because of taxes, right? You, you want to bring everybody to a place where they can register so you can make money. Luke is laying out a clear contrast here between the worldly king of that day in his edict, in his decree, and the king of kings and the coming of Jesus. And notice with me how God, in this text, takes and uses the most powerful human on the planet he takes the most powerful human on the planet and begins a chain of events that turns the world completely upside down. From among the millions who had to register and travel thousands of miles in that group, there's a single man named Joseph and a single woman named Mary on their way to register. This one little family coming from an obscure village in Galilee, following the command of their earthly king, will be brought into the perfect plan, the perfect plan and promise of God. As I said, the Roman register was returned to your ancestral home, probably for taxes, verse 4. And Joseph went to Galilee, town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, he registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. All over these narratives, all over this historical narrative Luke gives us, uh, he mentions David over and over again. He mentioned it twice here in verse 4. Luke already told us, uh, told Mary that, David, that she would have David's son. 
The angel said that God would give him the throne of his father, David, chapter 1, verse 32. Zechariah said that God would raise up a savior in the house of his servant, David. Now Luke tells us that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, came from the royal line of David. The, 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 the reason why it's coming over and over and over again is to emphasize his identity. You see, in order to fulfill the promise that God made of salvation, the Messiah must come from the direct line of King David. That was the promise. And we see Joseph now going to Bethlehem, who's in the direct line of David. Many commentators point out here that Joseph did not have to take Mary with him. We don't know why, doesn't say. 80 to 90 mile journey that took a week. Luke doesn't tell us, the scripture doesn't say, but one can only imagine he's not going to leave his, his soon-to-be pregnant virgin girlfriend behind, fiancé behind, knowing the time was at hand. But there's something else going on here too. Not only is Joseph in the lineage of David going to Bethlehem, the city of David, but there's another promise. The Savior had to be born in Bethlehem. Because of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Years and years and years before, the prophet says this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days, from everlasting to everlasting, will be born in Bethlehem. God, who cannot lie, had to keep his promise moving this couple to Bethlehem where Jesus will be born. And God uses this mortal king to fulfill his promise of the coming eternal king. Here's the principle. This is, sometimes when we do expository preaching here, side note, I'm just amazed how much God takes his word doing expositional preaching that is so applicable today. Listen to this. Here's the principle. Even when those in places of high authority make decisions, it is all part of the supremacy of God's sovereignty. Just had an election, didn't we? Maybe your person won, maybe they lost. I'm not here to tell you. Even those in high places and high authority who make decisions are all a part of the supremacy of God's sovereignty. We see that right in this text. Even Caesar's decree was part of the divine plan of God. God rules over all things for his glory. This is true not only in the plans and purposes of God in salvation. As he graciously draws these, this Mary and Joseph in and other people, Zechariah, in to his redemptive plan. It's also true for ordinary everyday life that you and I face. God is working out his will, and we will see that he gets the glory in the end, no matter what happens in this world. Family, we can rest on that. Yes, even the evil of the world. And if we're honest, if we say, you know what, I can't see how God is taking all this evil and actually going to work it out for his glory and our good. I just, can't, I just can't see that. And we're acting it was just as smart as God. So because I can't see it, I can't understand it, I don't see how all that works, therefore it can't possibly happen. That's an arrogant statement. Remember, dealing with the mind of the eternal God and therefore considering something which is beyond our finite understanding and our grasp, we have to recognize there'll be mystery. 
God is holy. God is perfect. There is no darkness in him at all. He permits the wicked to perform wickedness, and they are responsible for it, and he overrules it for his own wise and holy ends. And the best place you can see that is not only here in this text, but in the gospel itself. Acts chapter 2, Peter is filled with the Spirit. It's Pentecost. He stands up and he's preaching his first message. And he talks to the, to the Israelites and the leaders and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you wicked people crucified him and killed him by the lawlessness of man. When the apostle being persecuted by, by the worldly powers in Acts chapter 4, they pray, Sovereign Lord. They're being persecuted. Sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and earth and everything in it. For truly in this city there were gathered together, the kings and rulers of the earth, were gathered against, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, sovereign God, and your plan, sovereign God, had predestined to take place. The gospel is the work of God, where the evil of man crucifies the King of kings, Lord of lords, the spotless Son of God, and yet God takes that and saves wicked sinners like you and I. Can God work all things out according to his holy plan and his purposes, even among evil? Yes. Can I figure it all out? No. No. But maybe this morning you're feeling like a pawn in this, in this, in this scheme of life. Maybe you feel like you're, being a, you're, you're a pawn in the, in the, in the hands of Caesar. <laughs> but our text tells us that Caesar is just God's pawn to do his bidding. Our times are in his hands. He's sovereign over all. He will be and use, I should say, the most powerful empire on earth to do his bidding. He is sovereign today. He rules over all. And we should not fear. That should cause us to trust and rest in him. The sovereign God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Luke continues to tell us what happened in Bethlehem. They get to Bethlehem and there's no room. You know the story, right? No room in the inn. Holiday Inn closed. Marriott, no openings. Actually, don't think that. That's not what they had back then. I'm just kidding. But usually when you... Travel to other cities, people would open up their homes to you, or there may be a large room where, where a lot of people would stay, uh, relatives, and it would just be something you, you would, you know, they don't leave the porch light on for you, you know what I mean? It wouldn't be a place that, like an inn like we think it is, but um, it, it, sometimes just a common room. There's no room. And because there's no room, the couple, uh, Joseph and Mary, stayed in a, in a stable. We hear that all the time at Christmas time. It could have actually been a part of the house or a place where the animals were kept within the house. I think in the first, um, I think it's second century, Justin Martyr wrote down, Joseph, this, this is, goes back to the second century. Since Joseph had nowhere to lodge in that village, Bethlehem, he lodged in a certain cave near the village. And while they were there, Mary brought forth the Messiah and laid him in a manger, end quote. So, could have been... Around back, it could have been a, a, a small stable where animals were kept. It could have been also in a cave because animals were kept in cave. But regardless of exactly where Jesus was born, we shouldn't miss the point. And the point is, before there's glory, there's humility. 
Before there's glory, there's humility. Jesus' birth is a living explanation of how the kingdom of God works. The first will be last. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will uh, exalt you in due time, James 4. In the kingdom of God, first comes humility, then comes glory. And we see that demonstrated here in the humility and the condescension of Jesus. And that's the gospel. The historical context of Jesus' humble birth points to the, the greatness of God's love for you and for me in the gospel. And we see a window in this birth into the heart of God, into the character of God, into the love of God. We see something of the beauty of God and the grace of God and his condescension to us and our Savior. We're the ones who sinned against him. We have chosen to worship ourselves and to worship our own agendas, our own ambitions, rather than give him his glory. In order to rescue us, the rebellious ones, the ones who have rejected him, he prepares his son to be born in humility. Not a place of gold and silver, not a place of royalty, but in a feeding trough for animals. Not, not, not clothed in satin and, and silk and stunning baby apparel, but wrapped up in clothes that have been stripped and wrapped around him to keep him warm. In this glorious passage, we see God humbling himself and humbling of his son for our sakes. It is a glorious picture of the gospel. The reality of the son of God entering the world in the most humble way and then live a life in a most humble way has enormous significance. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Corinthian church, his second letter. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the unmerited favor and love of God, that though he was rich, the Lord Jesus, with the Father in glory, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus become poor so that his people might become spiritually rich through his poverty and through his suffering on our behalf. Before the incarnation came, Jesus was more rich than Augustus could ever dream or imagine. For our sake, he stooped to be born. Not merely as a human, but as a powerless infant in an animal shelter in an insignificant town. What a paradox. What a paradox Luce is showing us between the king of Rome and the king of kings. Baby King Jesus. Placed in a manger, in a, in a feeding trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes. I don't know if you're familiar or you've maybe heard this story because of Christmas, but wrapped in swaddling clothes would mean that they would take the limbs of the child and they would wrap the limbs separately. Some believed back then that, the, you know, it, it was helpful to keep the arms and legs to remain straight. Uh, certainly it was, a, it was a way in which the, the child stayed warm. Um, it, would, it, would, you know, it would look like a mummy, you know, where you wrap the arms, wrap the legs, uh, and each one then you would wrap the torso. It provided some warmth, it provided a sense of security. But here's Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a wooden food trough. Notice with me twice, verse 7 and verse 12, it says that he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Twice. I think it shows us how much Mary and Joseph cared for their son, loving their newborn to keep him warm. Who knows where they got the clothing from there, rip pieces of clothing, wrap them in. Part of this was also the promise of Mary, 
right? Do you remember when, when the angel Gabriel came to her and said, listen, you're going to have a son. Uh, I know you're a virgin, but you, you, this is what's going to happen. And she said, what'd she say? She said, okay, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it to be to me according to your word. Little did she know she was traveling 90 miles pregnant, probably on the back of a donkey. Uh, hopefully she probably would have said the same thing, let it be done, but still, that, that's what it took. It meant going to a town where she may have known no one, no family, the anxiety and the stress to giving birth in a messy animal stable. Let it be done according to your word. Ripping clothing, trying to find something to keep Jesus warm, probably praying, I hope I get through this, get me home, Right? Second, I think Luke mentions that he, twice, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes because it points to his humanity, right? Jesus divinely conceived, but shared the whole human experience that we share. He was fully man and fully God. We see her, Luke mentioning these things for several reasons. There's another reason, a third reason why he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, pointing to something else, and we'll talk about that as we close. So the third point is the shepherd's newsflash. Verses 8 through 12, I'm sure you heard it a million times. The announcement of the shepherds concerning what's taking place in Bethlehem, in the cave or an animal's refuge. The angel of the Lord shows up at night, right? They're, they're out in the field doing their own thing, right? Minding their own business, doing their jobs, keeping watch over the flock by night, and the Lord shows up. And you got to ask the question, why shepherds? Why shepherds? Well, maybe some people say, well, David was a shepherd. But I don't think that's the reason. I mean, if you, if, if, if you want to make an announcement, something really big, would you go in the middle of the night to a bunch of shepherds? Like, you'd get a PR person. You know what I mean? You're, you're like, who's movers and the shakers of our culture, man? We got, we got this big announcement to make. Maybe, maybe I'll even send a, a, a bulletin over to the king. Maybe I'll contact the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the powerful men of that day. The Savior's born. Announcement news. A press conference. No, they go to shepherds. God goes to a shepherd. First Corinthians tells us God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. <laughs> the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And here the lowly of the world to proclaim the message so that no one can boast. Shepherds in that day had very bad reputations. I don't know if you know that. They were a despised occupation, outcast of the culture. They were, they were often accused of robbery for going on other people's property with their sheep. They were considered unreliable in a law court. It's like, yeah, we got the, the shepherd here who wants to give testimony. No, we don't trust those guys. Get them out. <laughs> Maybe the message came to them to demonstrate again the truth of the gospel that God comes to the poor and the needy that God comes to those who sense there's a need those who are the outcast those who are in need of a savior he doesn't come to the self-sufficient he doesn't come to those who say I need no savior he comes to those who sense a deep need Verses 9 through 11, just amazing. 
This is amazing. Every word is, is significant. I mean, they're in the dark. You've got to remember, they didn't have these lights. The shepherd, all they ever saw was a candle, maybe a fire. And all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord shone around them. It freaked them out. Great fear. Going home to change. Like that kind of fear is what happened. The manifestation of the glory of God is present in power in the darkness shined all around them. Scripture a lot of times uses the word darkness as a, as a um, uh, representing sin. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Spiritual darkness overcome uh, 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 the world as Satan has, has you know, uh, his head's about to be crushed. Recovery of sight of blind was going to begin. And the glory of the Lord, the light of God shines and it's terrifying, but they say to the shepherds, fear not. You see that? They're not here for judgment. We're not here to dispense God's wrath, which we see over and over in Scripture. Fear brings something much better. It brings a, a, a good news. They're safe. The message is good news. Look at the text where we get the word gospel from. We have an announcement to make. I say this all the time. The gospel is not advice. The, announced, the gospel is good news that has been announced, that has already happened, that we must respond in faith. It's announcement. It's actually used in the outside world, uh, in the Roman world in that day. There would be an announcement that a new emperor, good news, a new emperor has, uh, just had a son. A new emperor has been born into the world. Or we have victory in our army has just come back. Somebody has come back declaring good news to us. We won the battle. They'll, they'll be home in a week or two. We've won. Our city is safe. Good news, the angels say. A savior has been born this day. It's not just uh, uh, joy that comes. It's what, look what it says. It's great joy, mega joy, supersized joy. Delight, hilarity, the word can be translated. Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is all over. Joy is all over the text of chapter 1 and 2. Zechariah told by the angel in chapter 1, you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Chapter 1, verse 44, John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb. Chapter 1, verse 47, Mary rejoiced in God her Savior. Chapter 1, verse 58, the community gathered around Elizabeth and what? Rejoice with her. The good news is exceedingly exciting and joyful because God has come and provided, provided a solution for our sin problem. It went from total terror to giant joy. And you know, many of you could testify, believing the gospel should bring joy. Right? It's like even to this day, it's hilarious that God loves me. <laughs> with all my failures, with all my issues, God loves me still. And God loves you still. That's hilarious. <laughs> You're welcome. There's no greater joy than the grace of God in the gospel. The highest and best joy is known when our sins have been forgiven. Our Savior has died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, risen from the grave, brings great joy. Verse 11, for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. 
what the angel is doing here, family, and look at this. Not only this announcement in this, in this news flash of good news, but what the angel is doing is the angel is interpreting who this child is. Who is this one that's born of a virgin, born in a stable? Who he is? He's the son of David. We talked about that. The city of David, Bethlehem. Over and over, six times, Luke has mentioned David's name. He's the royal son. He's not only the royal son of David, he's the savior. That means deliverer. He's the one who rescues us from death and destruction. The ultimate deliver that, deliverance that God will bring to you and I is spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin, the power of Satan. Someday all the, pen, someday, someday all the presence of sin will be removed from us. And most importantly, he delivers us. Now listen, family. The most important thing we are delivered from by the Savior through the cross and the empty tomb is the righteous wrath of God himself against sin. Mark that. The name Christ is the name, a title given to Jesus. Not his last name. Jesus Christ that lives, you know, that, that's not it. It's, it's a title. It comes from the transliteration of the Greek word Christos. Messiah uh, in Hebrew, the anointed one. We see, we see kings and, and priests being anointed in the Old Testament. God has always promised that one, the final anointed one, the final Messiah will come. He will save us from our sins. He will be anointed and save us and reign and rule in his kingdom forever. And the Jews are waiting for this Messiah, awaiting for the anointed one. They know that David and other prophets was just a signal, just pointing to a greater Messiah. And here the announcement of the of the angel that the Savior has come. But notice last title that this, that this angel says. He is Jesus the Christ, the Lord. Excuse me. 17 times so far in the gospel according to Luke, Lord is mentioned with Lord God. mentioned. Now Luke tells us here in chapter 2, he brings the, two, the Lord God and the Lord Christ together. Okay, Jesus is the Lord God. Christ, this, this tiny baby found lying in a manger, the promise and anointed Savior was none other than God himself appearing in the flesh. The good news that was announced by the angel gave no doubt to who this baby was. His identity is clear. He is the Lord himself, his deity. He is a baby, he's full humanity Lying in a manger, he's the Savior, he's the Messiah, he's the promised one who would atone for the sins of his people, delivering them from sin and death. That's the good news of great joy. And now before the angel breaks into this joyful praise and worship, they tell the, they tell the shepherd, listen, um, this is what you need to look for. They give him a sign. And signs in the, old, excuse me, in the Bible, signs point to something, usually something greater than the sign itself, Right? God promised Noah, I won't destroy the earth. He gave him a sign. Would you rather have a rainbow in the sky or would you rather be destroyed by water? I'll take the rainbow, right? But it's pointing to something greater. God would use miraculous signs too as he, as he raised up his apostles. He gave them signs and, and to authenticate the message of the gospel. And you would think that God's like, I, you would think that the angels would say, there's a sign for you. As you're headed to Bethlehem, the the stars are going to dance in the sky and it's going to write across the sky, Jesus Christ has come. Like, no, um, th there'll be a baby. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes and he'll be lying in a manger. That's your sign. Hmm. I don't know this for a fact. I'm just saying. 
with thousands of people maybe in Bethlehem at this point, there may be more than one baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Maybe another child was born. I think it's possible. But I'll tell you what you won't find. You won't find a child wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a feeding trough in a, in a stall somewhere. There was only one of those. The angel gives them the sign because who would believe or think they would find a baby in a manger, in a feeding trough, in a smelly animal stable? If left to themselves, they would probably look somewhere in the temple, some, some place of royal splendor, not lying in poverty. Again, the humiliation of the incarnation that the Son of God humbled himself like this. From his humility in his birth to the work of the cross, the naked agony of the cross, we see in the birth of Christ the love, the character, the grace, the mercy, and the humility and condescension of Jesus. And then verse 13. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude. We have no idea how many. Read Revelation, it was a lot. Multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. First, the glory of the Lord was shown around them, uh, the the presence of God among them. We see the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple. And here the glory of the Lord is not in Jerusalem, is not in the temple. The glory of the Lord, listen, is not even in the stable where Jesus is. The glory of the Lord is with these lowly shepherds keeping watch over their sheep. And when the glory of the Lord shone, all of a sudden the angels want to sing to the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest. We love that song, Angels We Have Heard on High, right? Glory in excelsis Deo. That's that's glory to God in the highest in the Latin. And the song is instructive. It's saying, it's pointing, the angels are, are pointing to the beauty, to the majesty, to the magnificent, to the infinite worth and incalculable value of God. His glory will never change, but we are commanded to to worship him and give him, ascribe to him glory that's due him. I can't help but think of Piper's quote. God is most glorified in us. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Listen, if we want to begin glorifying God in our lives, we have to start by asking the question, where does my final satisfaction come from? Does our satisfaction come from what we do, from our kids, our grandkids, our careers, our marriages, other relationships, or do we find ourselves uh, completely satisfied in the fullness and the greatness and the glory and the beauty and presence of God? Do we have our greatest delight in God and pursue him as our greatest treasure? Do we find our greatest contentment in God himself? Can we say with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain? When we see God as the, as the treasure that he is, when we, we go to him as the fountain of living water, when we trust him enough to be enough, when we see that in his presence is fullness of joy, Psalm 16, that's when God is most glorified. Glory to God in the highest, ascribing to him all the glory. And then finally, this last part, he says, the angel says, glory to God in the highest, and then what? 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You get a Christmas card or you see Christmas writing on places, a lot of the, I won't say a lot, but there, there are places where you see that verse, and unfortunately, if you look really closely, it'll say KJV, meaning King James Version. King James Version, unfortunately, doesn't get that verse right, okay? And King James says this, and on earth peace, all right? So glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And the difference is clear. One is announcing peace has come, and another one is announcing that peace has come to a certain people. Okay? It has to do with uh, the, the noun, the translation of the noun. Most of, your, most of your commentaries, excuse me, most of your Bible translation, New America Standard, NIV, and New King James, they all got it right. It wasn't announcing peace on earth, because there is no peace on earth. There's no universal peace. The peace of God comes according to his sovereign pleasure, with whom he is pleased. So there's a connection between the coming of Christ and those, those whom God's pleasure rests on. And the peace that the angel's talking about, the peace that God's favor and kindness and grace rest upon is an absolute peace. It's an objective peace. It's something that you and I can have and receive on earth now. Because first and foremost is the peace with God. The real purpose and the real issue and the coming is that we need peace with God. The peace that Jesus brought was not between nations, was not between people. The peace that we're talking about here is not even the peace within you. The peace that's talked about here is between, between God and man. Colossians chapter 1. We just went through the book together. For in him... Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, excuse me, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, y'all, all of us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, there's that reconciliation, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, we're in an unreconciled relationship with our creator. The greatest need that you have this morning, the greatest need I have this morning, is to be reconciled to God. Verse 21, we're alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Alienation, estrangement, emotional isolation, dissociation. And apart from God, we're all estranged, estranged from God. We're not just alienated. The Bible says we're hostile. Look what it says. Actively hostile to our God. Our minds are at war with God. And God loves you. God loves me. But God is holy and repulsed and filled with indignation because of our sin. Our rebellion. Your rebellion. My rebellion. Romans 8, 7, the mind of, uh, of sinful man is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. See, our, our, our behavior is evil, our, our thinking is evil, mental, moral alienation, attitude and action, thinking and doing, we're alienated from God. The scripture says the problem we have is not that we need motivation or education. The problem is we need reconciliation. R.C. J.C. Ryle, now has come the highest degree of glory to God by the appearing of his son Jesus Christ in the world. 
He, by his life and death on the cross, will glorify God's attributes, justice, holiness, mercy, and wisdom, as they've never been glorified before. On the cross, the justice of God, our sin has been paid for, his holiness vindicated, his justice upheld, and his love extended, grace and mercy given to sinners who were once alienated, hostile, separated. Now they can be reconciled to God. Remember I said earlier, there's one more reason we should take note, that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Family, that's because at the end of his life, when he was crucified on a Roman cross, we read in Matthew that Joseph of Arimathea drew the nails from the cross and lowered the body of Jesus to the ground. And then he gently wrapped him in clean linens and laid him in a virgin's tomb. A tomb has never been used. As a linen, you could see the linen and bandages were wrapped around the body, limb by limb, separate. Mixture of myrrh and alloys were scattered in. From the lowly and humble place of lying in a wooden trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes, to the lowly and humble place, nailed to a wooden cross, then wrapped in swaddling clothes, for you and for me. Three days later, rising from the dead, declaring reconciliation and forgiveness to all who would repent and believe. Sacrifice accepted, reconciliation available to those who will come to him. Family, do you see the humility of God? Do you see God's provision for you this morning? Do you recognize his humble provision for your sin problem? Is God enough for you this morning? The band's going to come up and we're going to sing. Come thou long expected Jesus. Let's think of this passage. Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Born to die for lowly sinners. Bruised to crush the serpent's curse. Raised to life to heal the nations. Raised to grant our spirit's birth. Let us pray. Father, thank you for raising up Dr. Luke to give us the historical reality and narrative of the Savior's birth. We learn much from it. We not only learn and really see a glimpse of who you are, but we see how desperately we need salvation and how you humbly came. And God, we pray for maybe there's someone here in this room that maybe their pride needs to be knocked off. They need to be knocked off of, of that pedestal of pride, I should say. And that, Lord, they would see the humility and the provision that you have provided. And that, Lord, as we sing this song, you will grant to them repentance and faith. And, God, we pray as your people as we sing as well, that we would be reminded of the Christmas story, that our hearts would soar with gratitude and thanksgiving. And that we would see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, his incalculable worth and value in our salvation. And may we praise you, Lord, with our whole hearts, we pray. 
In Jesus' good name, amen.